Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 8th, 2010, and my guest is Steve Mayer. He is a longtime veteran of the music industry, particularly experienced in the area of marketing and promotion. He now runs his own consulting business, Smart Marketing, and publishes the music entertainment newsletter, Disc and Dat. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Welcome. I'm glad to see you too, my friend. So I'm going to start with the past, and then we'll move to the present, and then finally, if we have something to say, we'll talk about the future. In the past, the record business, the music business was very different. So I want to get your thoughts on who made money in that business and how did they make it. In particular, what did record labels provide that made them profitable? I, I, as far as uh, labels providing uh, what they provide for the artist, I don't think there's too much difference between uh, what they do today and then. I think what's different is the structures of how they do it, and that's what's changed dramatically. The, <clears throat> the old model, the traditional model that we had for years when I came into business, um, and, I, and I came into business in 1970 for Capitol Records. Um, I worked there 14 years before I went to uh, Universal's MCA Records in 83. Um, and the labels were um, based on a model that was very, very strong. Um, marketing and promotion was basically reliant solely um, upon one or two things, and that was either you had an established artist that was, you know, in in the public light previously, uh, you know, and and literally from the fifties, let's say it was Elvis Presley or Frank Sinatra, or somebody, and they were still selling records, or B, everything was established via radio play, yeah. and radio really was the forefront. And, and the strategic partner with the record industry, and as radio grew and the top 40 format grew and expanded, and then later in the 70s when FM radio started playing albums, uh, the record business had its second explosion. Um, so the model was based on uh, you know, securing radio play, marketing uh, to the audience that was hearing records on the radio, uh, and then, of course, from that there was subsequent television ex- exposure as well. And the distribution channels were very, very strong at retail. There was a, at that time, you know, record chain after record chain, from Tower Records to Warehouse Records to Licorice Pizza, all over the United States there were great record stores that people could walk in and buy their music. Um, It was, of course, a great and very profitable business until 83, um, when the CD came around. And when the CD came around, it became even more profitable on the label side uh, for the very reason that there was more profit in CDs and B, a lot of the people that had bought music previously in the vinyl or cassette or 8-track format rebought it in this new format. So labels could make a lot of money uh, putting their catalogs on CDs, converting them to digital, releasing them, and making billions in dollars on catalog without actually spending a lot of money on breaking those artists because what you were doing was reselling to the public a lot of the music they already had. And then, of course, as new artists broke, the same, uh, the same plan was in effect. Radio was really the vanguard of what happened. Of oh. course, we now know that around 
in the mid to late 90s, everything started to change when a, a little website named Napster came along. Yeah, hold hold off on that. I want to let's stick with the the pre-Napster or pre-digital world. When I'm curious because I know how hard it is in some industries to predict success. When you'd get a new artist or even a new album, how accurate were the forecasts that the labels would make in predicting success? For example, in movies, I know that they're I'm told not very good at predicting what's going to be a blockbuster and what isn't. Uh, obviously, how much effort they put into it matters, but it's not decisive in that industry. Do you think that was that true in the music business in its heyday? Yeah, um, we actually sat down and and had weekly meetings about new releases um, every week or every month, and uh, of course. There's a different marketing plan in effect for an established artist. In other words, you know, if you've broken an artist like Bob Seger when I was at Capitol, your marketing plan for his subsequent album to follow through is radically different than that when you're going out and trying to break a brand new artist. Um, but what we made our projections, our initial projections on back then, it wasn't that. It wasn't that hard. I mean, there was a great deal of experience involved in drawing from the people on how they how they came to these decisions. But basically, it was an artist that you looked at. A and R went out and secured the talent, and once we secured the talent, we knew whether it was going to be talent that had the option of going to a album radio first because there was no quote unquote top forty or single we heard, or that's where there that's where the artist really belonged. Like Pink Floyd, for example, prior to them ever having a single, they were an album-based group. So your marketing plans were completely different than they would be for an artist that was a top 40 mainstay group. But before, like the before they were a household word, right? Before did they, people before know they actually had a hit single? Did you guys were you pretty confident they were going to be a household word, or were you? You, know? you hoped on every <laughs> subsequent album. You know, we used to have a building process. And when you signed an act, when you signed an act, and we say, you know, when the first, you know, we used to sign acts for for hopefully three year deals. Some were some some were signed longer, um, depending on on what A and R thought or whether the act was secured from another label and they were in development already. But you know, we used to look at acts and we'd say, you know, if we go out and we secure album radio at this level and we sell fifty to hundred thousand on the first album, um, we we want to sell more. But if we do that, we've got a base that we can go to, and we want to develop them on the second act. And yes, there are always times when we underprojected, um, and we and we assumed that an album was only going to sell X, and then it broke out of a market. Something happened, and B, there were times when we overprojected when an artist that we felt might might have more accessibility or more success based on a previous album, and it didn't happen, or it didn't happen at the level we expected. Any ones you remember that were the pleasant surprises that you weren't expecting? Uh, there, there were, you know, any time we broke an act, um, you know, the surprise was really, where did you end up? Once an act breaks, you know, I was... I, I By was break, you mean starts, I, I, launches? I was, I was involved specifically. At, well, I'll give you an example at Capitol Records. Um, I was the one who picked all of Bob Seger's singles, from Night Moves all the way through 1983. And we, Bob was basically an album-oriented artist. He had airplay in, in 
Michigan, his base, and in the Midwest, but he never really had a hit single, and he never was really a household name. And he, but he toured relentlessly. He did over 200 nights a year on the road, Whoa. and he and he built up a very very good album base between anywhere from 150 to 200 to 300,000 albums um, every time he came out. But he didn't have that magic chance until 1976 when he delivered uh, his Night Moves album. And when we, when I heard the album and I, I heard that single, um, I, I, I went to the manager and I said, I, 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 this is the cut I really think that's going to open Bob up to the world. And, and the manager said to me, well, you know, Bob, Bob's going to have a hard time putting that out because it's, it's not his rock and roll record. It's, it's not a rock and roll single. And I said, no, but it's a hit. And I said, you know, you need to get airplay outside of just Michigan. You need to have a real mass appeal, strong hit. And, of course, Night Moves became the first single after we convinced Bob that it was the right record. And it went top five nationally, and the album did over one million just on that one single. So um, talk about the actual marketing process. When, you, when everybody agreed that Night Moves was the single, what did you actually do on the ground to get that? music heard that would well from, from the promotion the side yeah from the promotion side it's viral by going from station to station and you know we we were very fortunate in the fact that we had some major radio stations jump on the record very early in in different markets uh, about five or six major markets started playing it because they they just thought it was an absolute smash from the minute that happened we immediately went into you know uh, <laughs> emergency mode and said, quick, we need marketing. And so we, we held meetings subsequent to our regular meetings, and we said, what are we going to do? One of the things we did was, um, you know, we made bombardier jackets that said, you know, night moves with fur collars, and we, and we gave them out at retail, and we gave them out at retail, uh, at radio, to all the key programmers and, and the general managers. We created posters for in-store marketing. We did new radio spots. Um, Bob, we planned... Um, you know, we we did the marketing for his whole tour because obviously, when the record started breaking new markets, there were markets that Bob was going to go have to go in and play where he might have played before, but now the venue was changing. Yeah. So we really, you know, we went into uh, DefCon Four status and said, "This is it. Let's go." And when you get the nibble. Uh, uh, on a record like this, and it goes on in five or ten or, or whatever it is, however many major markets, you're going to do everything necessary to rope the record in and bring it in. And you, re- and by the way, you really don't know until you have weeks and weeks of airplay what the resultant sales are going to be. You're hoping that you're going to reach that that gold and then the platinum level and hopefully, hopefully multi-platinum. It, it, once the record was a hit and it was on the radio for, you know, 12 weeks, which is three months of airplay, um, we were already at platinum. And once that happened, uh, we knew from the album side, and they were already on the next cut and the next cut, what to pick for the second single. So obviously getting the second single out uh, was an easier task for us because radio welcomed it with open arms because now they had just had this tremendous success with with the first single. But again... Uh, you don't know what the results are going to be with the second or third single. Now, we were very fortunate with that project that we had four four hit singles, and the album went over four million. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that y- you would hope you can do with every single project, that you could release a single and reach a new sales plateau. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes, you know, you'll get a single 
that becomes a great, great radio record. It doesn't convey it. Yeah. thousand <laughs> sales. Yeah, that would be it. You know, or if it if it increases your sales, it's incremental. It might not be proportionate to what another hit single was. Did you ever have any uh, singles or albums where you slogged and slogged, thinking you'd never make it, then all of a sudden it just caught fire unexpectedly? Yeah, you know, that's that's the one thing about the record business that nobody really understands, and that is, you know, I, I used to get all the time, and I still get via my newsletter, you know, comments from people that say, you know, labels only promote what they want, and they pick and choose what they want, and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm here to tell you that, number one, no record label cares yeah. <laughs> where their hits come from. A hit is a hit, and they would love every record they put out to sell. You must remember that every Strange. artist they sign gets some kind of advance. They're going to go and re- pay for the recording cause of this artist, and they don't sign artists because the it, yeah. you know they expect them only to sell X. They hope they're <laughs> going to sell Y. Yeah, and uh, you know the reality of the marketplace, you know, really dictates what's going to happen more so than the label picking and choosing. I mean, we had times and we had priorities on certain records, and radio picked another record. Um, that might have been, you know, the B or C priority. And for what reason the programmer wanted that record? Uh, it's, it, the reasons are, are numerous. And, and, but whatever it is, if the, if the programmer believes in it, we, we did everything to back him up. Let's talk for a minute about the profit margins in the business. Uh, you mentioned it when the CD came out, which I remember vividly. Uh, you're right. People obviously, a lot of people were excited about it. A lot of people wanted to recreate their catalog in this new medium that was better, or at least they, parts of it were better, aspects of it were better. And if I remember correctly, the price went, did it go up or down to the re, at the retail level? Uh, uh, when it was first released? Yeah. Oh, the, when CDs were first released... They were retailing for almost nineteen ninety nine. Right. They were, it, if you remember, they were in they were in those long slim boxes. Yeah, they were where hard the to CD steal. Was on top. Yeah, and then the cardboard box, and they were they were like retailing for like nineteen ninety nineteen ninety nine. As by opposed the way, to, and, and you know, they sold. Michael Jackson's Thriller was one of the first CDs I think that ever went platinum. Um, platinum is how many? A million. Okay. And uh, you know, just, but it went a million just in CD sales. I mean, uh, you know. Uh, it was. It wasn't much time after that. Um, I don't remember the exact time frame, but um, very shortly after that, that long slim pack went away, and dealers gave us the feedback that you know th- that package wasn't working in all the bins. And by the way, most of the labels um, co-opt the expense of converting all the retail stores. Um, into those record bins that they could sell CDs because their old bins that had vinyl didn't work. So but, they so co-opted a lot of that cost. When you say co-opted, but, they paid for it. I, they paid for it in co-op advertising or, or you know, they, they gave them an allowance. I, I, I wasn't in distribution. I can't tell you how it was done, but we co-opted most, most all the big retailers. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because when you said that the CD was good for profit margins – in most industries, when you get an innovation like that, competition among the suppliers often just means a lower price. The, comp- the margin stays the same in the business, but the consumer gets the better deal. Uh, was, was it cheaper to make CDs rather than LPs? They obviously took up less physical room. No, it's actually cheaper to make a – well, it was cheaper then to make a vinyl record. Um, eventually it became. You know, today it's more money, even though vinyls come back as a huge niche market, and it's, it's a real market again. Um, but there's not that many vinyl plants left, so 
um, it's a matter of supply and demand. So actually, it costs more to make vinyl today, not because the process is more, because there's not as many places that can make it. But uh, back then, uh, I don't remember the exact the exact cost of making a vinyl record, but it was less than a dollar um, between. Unless you were unless you were doing something. there were there was a process where some artists demanded that we use quote unquote virgin vinyl, and that was vinyl that had never been recycled, and it was and it was better. And um, we usually charged a dollar more for that at retail. Mm. Um, but you know it it was under a dollar unless again you had an artist that was an extraordinary royalty. Um, and if the Beatles were in that category, their albums were usually a dollar more, which they were back then. Interesting. Um, but the CD. Um, when you, when it was initially manufactured um, with the plastic you know box that it still has today, and, and the and the disc and the artwork and blah blah blah, it it varies again based on royalties and royalty is negotiated on a different level for every artist. So you know yeah. that's that's a factor that you can't put in until you know what that that price is, and that's where. The legal department tells you this is going to be your royalty rate, and then the company has to decide in distribution how to factor that in. But the CD, I think, if I remember correctly, the average you know manufacturing cost was around two sixty five to you know three dollars, and it varied. Um, there was a chance uh, and and a, a wish that we could get that cost down, and for a while they went to that Echo Pack with the cardboard. Um, it didn't work though in the retail marketplace. Um, so that was the cost of just the manuf- the raw manufacturing. Then you have to factor into that the cost of the marketing, the cost of the promotion, and of course, back then when the CD happened, we had MTV on there, and the cost of making a video. Yeah. So you know whatever there, I think the dealers were buying CDs back then for you know. Six ninety nine to ten dollars, depending on you know if it was a double CD, a single CD, and they were retailing them, you know, for fifteen ninety nine, sixty ninety nine, uh, uh, some sometimes higher. Yeah, and those were the initial prices. And of course, as time went on, yeah, better and, and the marketplace became more competitive. Yeah. and now of course we know those prices don't exist anymore. So a successful album, uh, you know. A high-end goal would be platinum, which would be a million sales. Uh, uh, well, I mean, yeah, that would be the goal for, I mean, everybody wants to sell as many records as possible. One um, landmark, one, one milestone would be, would be platinum. That would be a million. Your first, your first milestone would be gold. That's, that's 500,000 units. Your second, your second uh, level is platinum. And then you go, you know, each subsequent uh, million is called multi-platinum. So in the 70s and 80s, when LPs and then... Um, when vinyl and then CDs were the dominant mode of uh, of music, what would be a wildly successful album? What were some of the like mega hits of those eras? Oh my goodness! Well, when I was at Capitol, you know, uh, from from Bob Seger's Night Moves all the way through uh, '83, almost every album he did did four million plus. Of course, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, um, which I I was at Capitol Records for that too. That album was well over ten million. Um, uh, it didn't sell 10 million in, in four years, but it sold, oh my God, it was well over five or six million when I left Capital. Um, and how about Thriller? What did Thriller do? Uh, well, Thriller, Thriller to date is, uh, goes back and forth with the Eagles' greatest hits for being the number one best selling of all time. It, they're both at about 30 million uh, year, you know, to date. The Eagles' greatest hits is, is one or two? 
Yeah, the ego's greatest hits. What's three? In other words, <laughs> if you go to if you go at any one given time, yeah, the ego's sure. greatest hits is the biggest selling album of all time here, or it's Thriller. It, they literally go back and forth. And what would be a couple others up at that level at that range? Oh my God! There's you can you can literally go on the RAAA site, but you know uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA did uh, ten to fifteen million. Okay. Um, you know uh, there were albums subsequent to that and beyond that. The Spice Girls did I think fifteen million. So what about um, now? Now uh, Taylor, Swift, Taylor Swift has sold um, between her two albums ten million plus. Ten million CDs, or does that include digital? Does that include her iTunes well, sales? That, that's I'd have to break it. I don't know. I'd have to go to the RIAA site and look. But she sold 10 million albums combined, whether it's digital or, or CD, I don't know. Is but kind she of, sold 10 million. She's one of the biggest sellers right now. So I wanna br- I'm trying to bring this up to the present. A lot of people argue that you can't make any money make, selling music these days because everybody steals it. Well, it, it, it's harder I mean, from the label side or from the artist? Both. Um, it, for a label, for, for the, I would say, for the, you know, I get probably... Um, I'd say I have a couple of hundred independent artists that receive my newsletter every week. And, and to the letter, all of them, you've never heard of probably all of them, <laughs> but all of them tell me that if it wasn't for the Internet, they wouldn't be able to even do what they do. And they survive and make a living because of the Internet. Um, so they're what are able they doing? to market to their audience, tour relentlessly, and sell their CDs and digital music on iTunes and their own websites. Um, none of them, I don't think, are getting uh, rich and have, have had big hits, but they're all able to live. So from the musician's side, I think the Internet has changed dramatically the ability of all artists to generate uh, notoriety and make revenues from their music. Now, from, uh, from the label side... Can we stick, um, can we stick on, with the artist? For, let's stick with the artist for a sec, though, because some people complain that <clears throat> because of, of sharing... Yep. Napster and its successors, LimeWire and others, mm-hmm. um, that they lose so much revenue. So at some end, some part of the distribution, sure, like certainly the the niche players, yep. they would never get attention from a major record label, and the internet's helped them a lot. It. What about the more successful groups? Are they? Is their profitability as artists being? Greatly or slightly hampered by uh, file well, sharing. Well, you know, there's two there's two different viewpoints on that, and there's tr- tremendous amount of data to support both theories that both a you know <laughs> file sharing kills kills the profitability for everybody. It, it, obviously, we know what it's done to the record business because uh, a, a report that came out late in 2009 by Forrester Research showed that the record industry <laughs> in one decade, from 1999 to 2009 went from 14.6 billion in revenues down to 6.3 billion. So, um, just a blip. They, they can blame that. You know, the the industry blames that on, on online piracy. Yeah. Um, and I think piracy is a factor of it, but I don't think it's the only factor. I think there's a whole bunch of other issues. Talk on the other those. side of the coin, there's studies all over uh, the world that have been done, and uh, you know that that have cited that those who download music illegally. Uh, over P2P sites also happen to be the biggest consumers of legal music. And there's studies backing that up. Yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, skept- I'm skeptical. I know the studies, and, I, and I'm, I, it's a very difficult area to measure accurately, obviously. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's very difficult. It's but, prone you know, to bias. You, and You really have to look at, uh, at, what's, at, at what's been done. And now, you know, if, if somebody is selling, you know, the argument that, you, that a label would make today 
is if Taylor Swift has sold 10 million albums in three years, she would have sold 15 without file sharing or, or 20. Um, and she, they might be right. Maybe. And, and that's an argument, again, that you can't prove. Right. Because uh, you don't know. Now, even without file sharing, before file sharing ever started, people were burning copies of CDs. Oh, yeah. And they're still doing that. So even without file sharing, people would burn more CDs. And, and of course, you know, even with that, what I've always said in the newsletter is if tomorrow you eliminate all the, uh, you know, ISPs or, you know, the, you, you get all, of, all the file sharing sites off every website in the world, there's still going to be uh, dark nets and intranets where people are going to do this. So you're, not, you're never going to stop what exists. I believe from the artist side that, if you look at the people that have used the web to their success, and I guess the greatest example, or one of the greatest examples, would currently be, you know, before Lady Gaga released her new single, Bad Romance to Radio, literally right before it went out and, and it was in their hands, it was on that album, um, but the single wasn't pushed at radio. Almost simultaneously, she had instantly overnight on YouTube, about 10 million views, um, the minute the video was released. Which she made no money from, right, directly? On the video? Right. Um, I don't know what, uh, she might, I don't know what her arrangement is with Universal. She might have, a, she might own that video, and she can repackage it later. I don't uh -huh. know. But my, she, my point is, is that it was a marketing, certainly a yeah, marketing. A, all strategy. videos are marketing tools, and, and they're used that way. Some artists retain the rights to all their videos, so they can uh, retail them later as packages you know, or or use in any way they want, and I don't know what her deal is with Universal. Um, but before before the record was even in the top ten, it got up to twenty five and thirty million views on YouTube, and I knew by looking at YouTube that the record was destined to go to number one because you can't have that kind of gargantuan response online. Um, I also have seen artists virally that have used the web, and the greatest example I wrote about for a long time in the newsletter was Wilco. And Wilco had the tremendous um, uh, experience where they went into their label, uh, Reprise Records, and they delivered an album called Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and they said, we don't want to release it. And uh, Why didn't they? they? They thought it wasn't enough to be development-wise for them to sell the next platinum. They said, uh, to sell the next level, they, they wanted a better record. And Jeff Tweedy, the lead, lead singer and the, and the founder of the band, said, fine, we'll take it back. He took it back and he put it up on the Internet, and he offered it to all his fans. And he said, download our album. They For don't free. want to release it. For free. It became, it, it, at that time, it became the most downloaded album uh, on, online, it, several hundred thousand people. Now, now, the band did this for a very unique reason, because they knew that the money that they were making from their record sales wasn't anywhere near what they were making in live appearances. So they knew that from the marketing side, this was the way we need to build our audience. It not only worked, but it worked. <laughs> ironically, um, Electra Records came to them and said, well, we'll sign you. Hmm. And that's under the, that was under the same Warner Music Group. And they got signed, they put the record out finally, and the record still ended up selling uh, three to 400,000 copies. I think by now it's probably gold. You'd have to go check. But it became Wilco's biggest selling album to that date, even with all the downloads. And subsequently, their next album sold more, and the next album sold more, and the next album sold more. And Jeff Tweedy is one of the few artists 
who's out there saying that the Internet is not my enemy, and, and, and if you don't know how to use it, it's your fault, it's not my fault, but I'm going to use it to my benefit. And in fact, when their latest album came out just last year, they put it online for you to scream, not download, but for you to scream. And I think that that's the great divide um, between uh, what's going on between the labels and a very, very uh, aggressive and progressive artist like a Wilco. Um, the labels would never encourage an artist to do that. And, and to hold it until they release their CD, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Tweety's adamant that I'm going to use the Internet to my benefit. You know, it's the same, the same kind of thing. You know, the, the labels never embraced the Internet, and a guy named Steve Jobs came along and he said, I'm going to. He's done pretty well. I'm sorry? He's done pretty well. Yes, he has, and they just, they just passed 10 billion songs. And who do you think's making money on those? On, well, on iTunes, reven- we're talking about iTunes. Who's- yeah. Well, the revenue goes to iTunes. It's split. Be- you know, the- iTunes takes its percentage. And again, I'm not privy to what every label has in terms of deals with iTunes. But iTunes gives the labels their revenue, and the labels breaks that revenue down to the artist. Um, and each artist, I'm sure, has a different deal. I don't think for one second that the brand new emerging artist is getting the same royalty rate that Lady Gaga is getting. But obviously, you make less. When you're selling a song for a dollar twenty-nine or ninety-nine cents, then if you're selling an album, you know, for for nine or ten dollars at retail, and and the revenue from the label and the artist side is completely different. And so here's, yes, that's a real problem in terms of revenues. So here, but here's the puzzle for me, and I love to hear your thoughts. Uh, obviously, as you pointed out earlier, record label revenue is way down, maybe half of what it was, and probably falling. Yep. Um, and I assume, well, I don't know, does that include their iTunes? Uh, that's gross revenue, so I assume okay. it includes everything. So normally you'd think, well, this is a change. This happens in, in markets. There's a change in the distribution channel. This new distribution channel is phenomenal. I love iTunes. I, don't, I generally don't buy CDs anymore. Somebody just gave me one because actually the, I think the only thing that's troublesome about iTunes is it doesn't work so well as a gift. Uh, mm-hmm. I've struggled with it as a giver of gifts. And somebody's just said, ah, it's too much of a hassle. I'm just going to send you the CD. Sure. So thanks, Bob, for that. Uh, so somebody, you know, that's – but other than that, you have this extraordinarily pleasant distribution channel called iTunes that not only is easy and quick, but also has this glorious organizational component, lets you find new music, et cetera, et cetera. Why have they not cut out – the record label entirely. Why isn't iTunes the distributor? Why aren't, why aren't they a label, essentially? Why aren't they generating new music and letting the internet filter out the quality and instead still giving money to the labels to be that filter of quality? In other words, if I'm a new artist, why, why, why can't iTunes sell me? Is that what you're saying? And why aren't they try, or why aren't they trying to do it in a more, as far as I know, they're not doing it in an organized way. Well, first of all, if you're a new artist today, you submit your music to iTunes and, you know, you write out the contract and everything. They're not against signing new artists. And first of all, easily hands down, iTunes is the number one online store all over the world. Right. Uh, and, you know, they've done, they've done an incredible job of branding. And frankly, um, they, they did an incredible job for two reasons. Number one, because Steve Jobs is an innovator, and he's the best innovator right now in all of business. Yep. And number two, because he has an iPod. 
you know, to sell. Yep. And the iPod be, literally became the, you know, colloquialism and, and the byword now for all of digital music playing. Yep. Um, so iTunes doesn't have – iTunes is a store. They're not a, they're not, and a, and an online distributor, but they're not a label, so they don't go out and secure talent and market talent. That's a separate function from what they're doing. Now, my question is, um, which I've asked uh, many artists that I speak to, is that at what point does an artist say to a label, you know, uh, I don't need what do you, you. What are you doing for me? Yeah, that's yeah. a better way to put it. Why does my iTunes just sell my music? Yeah. And, and, and the answer to that is, is real simple because Steve Jobs really has no, no vested interest at this point in, in making CDs or marketing in the retail marketplace. He's strictly a digital store. Yeah, that's true. And, and he doesn't want to bother with the brick-and-mortar world. Yeah, and, and, you, and frankly, he doesn't need to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. do, do you, and, and the cost, the cost of underwriting, you know, everybody thinks – that you know, all you have to do today is is you know, oh, you just, you just make your record and and the label signs it and they just put it out and 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 then if I if I if I'm lucky enough to get play, you know, they just sell it and then you know the but they keep all the money and I don't get back and blah blah blah. Well, that's wrong. The label spends a fortune in marketing and promotion, in videos, in in making the music you know available as many places. You know, that's the hidden cost that nobody sees. And if you if you speak to independent artists, they're well aware of that because they know how difficult it is. Because most of them are doing it on a local or regional level, and most of them will tell you, you know, I wish I had more money so I could take it to the next level. And maybe if I get signed by a label. Um, they they could invest in me and, and I could sell more records, but it's a tremendous amount of money. And frankly, radio play today, um, securing radio play is is harder than ever. And radio play today is really not what's driving uh, you know the new music first. The new music first is being shared online peer to peer, and it's going on YouTube. And artists are developing themselves way in front of radio play. And before the radio play even might start by a new artist, you know, they might have already sold 50, 100,000 singles or albums, you know, from online marketing and viral uh, viral marketing, doing everything that they know how to do, and they do it very well. Is, is radio going to make it? Uh, radio radio's in the same problem that the labels are right now. Their revenues are down dramatically radio station stocks that were selling uh, in the 50 to 100 dollar share are below in some cases a dollar at this point they're penny stocks um, and i think radio is an extraordinary powerful medium and if they want to make it and this is my opinion yep. if they want to make it they've got to give a reason for people to turn on the radio and be entertained. And if you go into any market today and turn on the radio, you hear the same 30 and 40 records. Now, the argument from radio will be, well, that's the way it always was. Yeah, in some way it was, but you had personalities also that if I was in Los Angeles and I turned on KMET, I knew I was in L.A. If I was in New York and I turned on WABC, it was New York radio. Or WNEW. Yeah, NEW, and today they're also cloned. That the the on air talent is minimal, um, and the records are uh, the records they're playing for the most part are all probably ninety five to ninety eight percent the same, with with some exceptions. But 
you know, if you don't give, the kids today and the youth of today isn't waiting for radio. No. You know, they go online at the age of 12, 13, 14, and they're, sh- they're not only sharing files to turn each other on, but they're turning each other on to YouTube and any place where they can hear these new songs or see these new artists. Um, and most of the time, I'll find out something from uh, an email that an artist will send me or a reader will send me, and you'll see something developing, and you can see the progress that's happening online. And, you know, when I, when I lecture, and I haven't lectured in a while, but when I speak to college classes or even high school classes, the very first question I ask everybody is, how many of you in here listen to radio for new music specifically? And, and maybe, you know, one or two hands go up. And then I say, how many of you in this classroom have iPods? Everybody. Yep. And how many of you are online? Everybody. How many of you are sharing files with friends that turn them on to music? 95%. You know, and, uh, you know, that's the that's the. You ask world. them how many of them are buying record, uh, buying music? Uh, and I say to them, how many of you, how many of you buy, buy music? And, and actually about, I'm, I'm actually shocked to see that almost 70% of them raise their hands. But if it is 70%, it still means 30% aren't. <laughs> yeah, and how <laughs> so much? The question is, and the question is how much, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it, this is the world... This is the world that exists today, and as I as I said to a label executive last week, who who said it's you know we can't make money like this, and I said whether you like it or not, this is the world that you live in right now. You cannot go back to the old model. What are you going to do to survive? And frankly, you know, why does iTunes? uh, iTunes is the number one branded store. Why hasn't every label? created its own unique destination where they sell music directly. Now, some of them have tried, haven't done it well. It's hard to do well. It's hard to do well. And some of them may or may not have that. But I'm not talking about just having a store where you click and you buy. I'm talking about a store where you do something. You know, the labels are the content holders. You know, if I was EMI and, and Capitol Records, I'd have my own website. I mean, the Beatles catalog is still not for sale digitally. And every day it's not, you know, people are just stealing it. But imagine what they could do by packaging, you know, different albums together and pack, packaging videos and, and, and packaging, you know, you're, if you buy this album on us, we're going to give you this other thing, which iTunes can't do without the labels because the labels have the content. So let me, let me ask you a different question related to my earlier question about iTunes. A lot of times when there's an, a change, a sea change like this, a dramatic change, an industry has trouble, you know, like you said, they, well, this is the way we've always done it. Well, they have trouble adjusting for cultural reasons, all kinds of reasons, resentment. They're trying to regain the past, whether it might not be possible. It does raise the question of why there aren't, maybe there are, why I don't see new labels springing up from scratch with your vision of added value for online sales directly. Is that happening? Sounds like, I, a, I, according to you, it's a profit opportunity. Uh, well, I, you know, I think number one, eventually, uh, they're not going to have any choice except, you know, the, the greatest um, thing that's happening from this point forward is strategic alliances, and 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 everybody that makes a strategic alliance, Universal just did one with Bally. I just wrote about it in the newsletter last week with Bally's Fitness, and they sold them four and a half million downloads for for Bally's Fitness. One way they bought four and a half million. Imagine if you did that with you know, 10 or 20 strategic alliances, and you each sold, 
each one of those four or five million. Now you're, say, getting the big, now you're getting at the big numbers. What does that mean? You, that, so if you're in a Bally's in Fitness words, working Bally's out, Bally's Fitness can... is doing a promotion to encourage people to join their clubs. And as part of that promotion, I don't know specifically how it works, but if you go to the Bally's website and you join up, you're going to get a free download. Uh-huh, okay. And the, the artist will be from the Universal uh, Catalog. And I don't know exactly all the artists that will be there, but anyway, the, the Universal ended up selling 4.5 million downloads off of that. Or, what, do you, what do you think of the Starbucks model? Starbucks is kind of its own record label right now. Well, yeah, and it didn't work. No? And, Why? Uh, you know, my, my opinion about that is, you know, yeah, they have a whole lot of outlets. And, you know, they're, so the first thought that comes to a marketing guy's mind is, well, there's 10,000 Starbucks. We'll put five albums in every one. That's 50,000. We put 10, it's 100,000. Yeah. The problem and if is, you put them in China and have everybody buy one, that's a billion. That, thank you. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't work that way because, A, Starbucks is in a record store, and, B, just putting music in an outlet you know, I mean, then why don't we put them in McDonald's and everywhere? And by the way, uh, that might be what happens in the future um, as music, you know, becomes more and more of a commodity. And and what format will it be five or ten years from now? We don't know. Well, probably when you eat the hamburger, you'll get a download. You know, you go. literally, I'm, I'm you know, really, probably go into your know. chip. You'll have a chip in your brain and your intestine. But, but, you know, the Starbucks, the Starbucks thing didn't work. Um, they tried to. They tried a very noble experiment. They thought. You know, if we sign a couple of artists and, you know, uh, we put them in our uh, stores and blah, blah, blah. Um, it worked with one of their albums. It worked with the Ray Charles album. Um, but that album was so extraordinary that uh, it virally became a media event. You know, won the Grammy for the album of the year, et cetera. Um, but it didn't work with the Paul McCartney uh, album that they tried or most of the other ones they tried. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the greatest thing... That's missing. One of the one of the critical elements that's missing today at retail on the music business is the great record store. And one of the reasons vinyl is coming back is because people miss the emotional connection between going into the store and picking up that record and touching it, looking at it. And if you go into Amoeba Records in Los Angeles, um, you'll see the environment that was similar to what Tower Records was in its great days. Um, and if you go into a good vinyl store today in, where they're popping up all over the place, you'll see people just looking and spending time there. And, you know, the, the digital world took that emotional connection away from a lot of it. And I don't think it'll ever come back the way it ever was. Um, but that, that says a lot about the way the business has changed as well. Yeah, well, I, you know, I like to browse. I loved Browsing a record store, uh, you know, and a we used to go. And, yeah, we we used to go into Tower Records and literally just hang out. You, well, <laughs> you'd spend a half an half an hour to forty five minutes just looking, uh, going down the aisles and picking up records and don't, looking. Well, and, don't tell anybody, but I do that at iTunes sometimes too. Right, I just and wander way, around. And by the way, people do do that at iTunes, but you know, the emotional connection it's is not quite different. the same. I agree. Let me let me ask you a different question. Shift gears a little bit and talk about. Uh, a different phenomenon. I'm going to read a quote from uh, John Perry Barlow, who's the lyricist of the Grateful Dead. And he said the following in a recent article in The Atlantic. Uh, it's a great, great quote. He says, what people today are beginning to realize is what became obvious to us back then. The important correlation is the one between familiarity and value, not scarcity and value. Adam Smith taught that the scarcer you make something, the more valuable it becomes. In the physical world, that works beautifully, but we couldn't regulate taping at our shows and you can't online the internet doesn't behave that way but here's the thing if i give my song away to 20 people 
and they give it to 20 people, pretty soon everybody knows me, and my value as a creator is dramatically enhanced. That was the value proposition with the dead. And what he's referring to is the bootleg phenomenon, that people would come to their concerts, record albums without, quote, their permission or without any profit for them, share them right. with their friends. Uh, and for the dead, they encouraged it rather than sneaking around in the undercover in the crowds and trying to stop people from recording. And they tried to make that a profitable strategy of marketing. And, of course, it's a it's an early, early version of, of so-called piracy or so-called file sharing by bootlegging a, a tape and then uh, giving it away to a friend and lending it or making a copy uh, for a friend. The quality's not quite as high, obviously, as a, as a real album, a live album, but it was high enough that people enjoyed it and valued the, that. And the Dead's idea always was they were a touring band. They made an enormous amount of money from concerts. And you mentioned this earlier, so I'm curious if you think concert revenue as a proportion of a band's revenue has changed in the last 10 to 15 years, and is it going to continue that way? What do you think is going on? Well, I, there, there's, no, there's no doubt at all today that if you look at the amount of money that you, you too, or Bruce Springsteen, if you, grossed from their concert tours in the last you know, years, you know, you too is like 180, now that's a gross, I mean, but 180-something million dollars or whatever it is. That's a lot of money. But after you take off the, the production cost and everything, you can still see that the net revenue to the artist is way higher than what it is from their record sales. Um, so if their album sold a million um, and they made, you know, uh, 10 million touring, uh, you, you have the answer. And then there's the other the other part of uh, touring, which is licensing and merchandising. T-shirts. So and Those revenue streams for artists that are able to deliver live to, the, to their audiences in their respected venues. I mean, Wilco can't play a 15,000-seat hall. They may play a three to 5,000-seat hall. But if, Wilco, if, if Wilco's uh, revenues and they sell out those halls, and they, they, they pretty much do every time they tour, and... Their overhead is down because they don't have to, you know, they've created a model for themselves where they don't have to create, uh, they don't have to spend X amount of dollars to try to sell more tickets, and they're pulling in, well, if their album is selling 400000 um, or 500000 and that's split among the band members, or however it's split, after the record company takes off its distribution, marketing, blah, 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 of course, the revenues from the album are not going to be anywhere near what the touring and the licensing and the merchandising are. It's, it's not even possible. So, is that new, though, or is that always I'm sorry? Been, is that new, or has that always been true? I think probably, you know, I think probably, I think back in the, in the 70s and even the 80s, if Bruce Springsteen sold 15 million albums or 10 million on Born in the USA in, in three or four years, his royalties were extraordinary. But... That album allowed him to go out, to go out and not just play in maybe five or ten markets where he's selling 10,000 seats. It allowed him to go into play 30 or 50 major markets where he could sell out and eventually, you know, play. He played the Rose Bowl in the Coliseum yeah. and for 100,000. So I'd have to look at his, his concert revenues after he became that much of an artist and then, you know, look at what he grows there versus his record. And I'm sure that in that one year that his concerts outgrows his record sales now, the issue is you're not touring every year, yeah. so you know what it's you, hard work. What do you, what do you <laughs> it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder work touring than sitting back and counting those royalties from the CDs. Yeah, right, and and the other thing is that when you know you're, if you're an artist that compounds, you know what's rare in the business today is 
we don't have artists that are delivering album after album after album in the same sales levels that we used to have. You know, um, you know, Bob Seger, four million, four million, four million, Pink Floyd, you know, five million, ten million, five million, ten million, blah, blah, blah. Their catalogs repeatedly, if you go on the, on the Billboard Best Catalog list, you'll see all these artists that are still selling albums, whether they're greatest hits or whatever. So they're getting royalty checks uh, every every month or every, you know, quarter from the record company. And, you know, they're getting, if they're on the radio, because they've been making hits for 10 or 20 or 30 years, they're getting their ASCAP or BMI royalty checks as well. So, yeah. you know, that, that's like a cash register that keeps ringing. It's kind, of, it's kind of ironic, right? We developed this extraordinary technology, di- digital music, that lets people enjoy, in many cases, a better quality experience than a concert. It's obviously different, but in terms of sonic value, this extraordinary fidelity that allows an artist to be enjoyed by a billion people. And then we turn the profit mechanism into the bricks and mortar of standing in front of them live in a closed venue in front of 50 to 100,000. It's, yeah. it's a wild thing. It used to be the other way around. It used to be you toured so you could sell the albums. Now you're saying, in a way, you sell the albums so you can really enjoy the tour. Yes, but uh, on the other side of the coin, you look at what you 2 did on their last tour, and they streamed it you know, live on the Internet to anybody that wanted to see it. Yeah. So That's that cool. technology also exists as well. And, you know, I don't, you know, I, I always see, uh, I always see regardless of what anybody wants to throw at me, and the labels traditionally throw it at me, not the artists, but whenever they throw the Internet at me and all the damage it's done, I always say to them, I look at the glasses half full, not half empty. I see boundless opportunities online instead of, you know, I know the CD is going down in sales, and I know your revenues are down. Um, there's a way to there's a way immediately that you might stop that and as lower your CD prices. Uh, if you if you're interested in keeping the CD in the marketplace for a longer period of time, lower your prices, get, and and don't release as many albums with one or two good tracks. Yeah. Um, you know, instead of charging you know yeah. people you know ten dollars for an album that has one hit, well, what are you going to do? You're going to buy the song, you know. <laughs> yeah. or, you, or you're going, or you're going to, you're going to download it illegally, or you're going to get it from somebody. You're not going to pay ten dollars for an album with one good song. Well, there's no doubt that there's never been a better time in human history to be a lover of music. The accessibility, the price, the quality of what you actually pay for in terms of what you like versus you're stuck with, uh, your ability to access and find music that you didn't know about, your ability to find music that you once loved that you that you've forgotten about that you want to dig up. Uh, you don't have to go to New York and go to the best used uh, CD place that in the world that you used to have to do or get their catalog. I mean, they're just, right. it's an incredible feast. The worry, and I, I'm going to get your, I know you're a half full guy, I am too, but the worry from the half empty people is, well, that's now. And, that, and that's true if you're, if you're Bruce Springsteen or you're U2. But, you know, 20 years from now, as this generation of 17-year-olds pays less and less for music and feels entitled to get it for free, uh, the the ability of that profit stream to generate the returns that are going to encourage people to go into the business just isn't going to be there. That, that, may, that may or may not be true. 
and the, and and what and I don't know if it will. And the only factor that we don't know is what is going to be developed in the future that will allow people to generate more revenues from the new models online. And I don't know what that. I'm not a I'm not a, a creator of that. Um, I'm a marketing guy at heart, and I believe from a marketing standpoint, I think there is a myriad of things that can be done right now. I do agree with you wholeheartedly that that people that are not in the habit of today that uh, of purchasing music um, are going to have a hard time ever converting to it. Then, on the other side of the coin, I see what happens when an artist um, like Susan Boyle in England, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, w- win- wins the X Factor, and she puts an album out and worldwide it sells 10 million in 90 days. Um, and I, so I say, aha, you know, all over the world, this woman sold records. She sold three million in the United States alone. Um, now, the record label will tell you, well, it's an older demographic. They don't traditionally download. It's a different audience, and it's blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, yes, all of, of those things exist. But a lot of those people could have had access to, got, to buying that same CD a whole lot easier online or having somebody get it for them easier than them going to a store or, or buying it on Amazon or wherever, wherever else they bought it. There, there's just, look, you're absolutely right. It's going to be increasingly more difficult as time goes on to generate the same kinds of significant sales that can give you a return on your investment. But again, the model that exists today right now in 2010, is going to change in a year and two years and three years down the road, just the same way the labels have, uh, have changed. You know, I mean, uh, when I worked, at, you know, when I left in 1992, um, every, every record label had uh, a full promotion staff of 30 to 40 people that went to radio. Gone. They're gone. Um, you don't need 30 or 40 people. You need a couple now because radio's changed. But retail's changed, too. Yep. And retail reacts to what happens from the consumer side. But I also have friends that are selling an awful lot of music online. Uh, one of the guys I worked with uh, at MCA Records started his own company out of his, out of his house called Friday Music. And you can go to FridayMusic.com. And he, go, he, he goes out and licenses music and signs some new music from artists that you, you know, you'd know the names of. And he's doing extraordinary well. Just by doing what he's doing, he couldn't have done that previously. Yeah, and I, I think, I think, and he's selling records, and he's selling vinyl, and he's selling CDs. Um, there, there's so many opportunities for people to make money in music, and music. I'm using music as the big umbrella. Um, you know, from licensing, merchandising, strategic alliances, concerts, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and those those models which you know, they refer to now as the 360 model. You know, Live Nation Madonna deal, you're aware of that, right? No. They signed Madonna to a $100 million deal for 10 years. They've guaranteed her $10 million a year, and they're going to get her records, and they're going to they're get her tour revenue, they're going to get her licensing, and they're going to get merchandising. Well, Madonna signed that deal, I think, last year, and she was 50. So that carries her through. She's going to be okay. I was, so so, I, was, I was so worried about her. It's good to know. You know, but what I'm saying is, you know, they, they've made that a three. In other words, they're not counting, I'm sure, on her selling uh, 
you know, $50 million worth of records in the next 10 years. They're counting on getting the revenue from all the other ancillary streams. And I guarantee you, you're going to see Madonna music within the next five to 10 years on commercials and, and, you know, in a myriad of other ways. I'm going to come back to your Susan Boyle example because it really reminds me of the point you made earlier, which I think is so um, subtle point which is the following. I'm not a big TV watcher. I didn't know who Susan Boyle was. Um, and, of course, she was in England. She wasn't an American Idol winner, right? No, she won the X Factor right? in England. Which is the English parallel. But well, she actually didn't win it. She came in second. I forgot. Yeah, she comes in second. Sorry. But she was a phenomenon on that show. So I, I happen to really like the song that was her signature song, which is I Dreamed a Dream. But if I had just heard that on the radio, eh, yeah, it's nice. She has a great voice. There's no doubt about it, right? That's but, right. But – the reason I almost bought that album, I didn't, but at least I thought about it, and many, I'm sure, did buy it, was because of an emotional connection that they got from seeing, and I think it's 50 or I don't know how many million now have seen it, the clip on YouTube where she came out after being, and I, who knows how much this was staged versus real, but you know, she comes out, this frumpy, very uh, un, un, low-expectations performer, and she... Uh, wows totally destroys the crowd and the judges with her performance and it breaks your heart i mean you can't help but be moved by it and as a result when you hear that song it's not the same song as if you just heard it promoted on the on the radio so to me all these auxiliary marketing opportunities you talked about you know throwing in extra things when you buy it online to me there's so much emotional uh aspects of the music that are going to be more important than just the sound itself and that's a glorious thing, and that's all because of the internet. Oh, absolutely, and it's all because of TV as well. Look what look what American Idol's done for the music business, you know. And that's because whether you like like what they do or not, the audience that watches that twenty five to thirty million people every week has an emotional connection absolutely. to these people for six months. In fact, what what I what I often tell people is what what American Idol does is what radio doesn't do anymore. We had the album format. They used to build artists. And by the way, back then, they didn't care what the album saw. You know, if we like Sammy Hagar, we're going to play Sammy Hagar. We don't care if he sells 50,000 or 5 million. We're playing Sammy Hagar. And they played the music because it was lifestyle-oriented radio on the album side. And they, pri- they, you know, they took great pride in building these and artists. Brand. And they had a, and, and this, that's what their audience wanted. And, like and, they, said, and by the way, those formats that were successful... Um, you know, the guys that programmed in those formats that did it successfully had huge numbers. In many markets, they, they paralleled the biggest top 40 music station. But they would build an artist, um, and we used to love that in the record business because we could take an artist that was building gradually from that format and break it over to the, uh, you know, to the hit single side. That, but that's gone now. There is no more album format. There's no more artist development. It's either you get a hit single or, or you, you get on TV, um, or you're on YouTube or something, and it starts virally. Um, but radio isn't going to quote unquote take somebody without having you know some reason to play it. It's it's increasingly more difficult to break that artist. So you know when you have television making a connection every week emotionally. You know look at look at what the um, the Journey song and the final episode of The Sopranos, "Don't Stop Believing." You know it had a second life. Yeah. Because of that, and it sold millions online in the next few months following that, and then it goes on, and then they put they put the song on uh, Glee, and uh, you know the cast of Glee does it, and it and it sells again. Yeah. 
Um, and that is that is exactly because of what you're saying. There's an emotional connection that is that is so missing today um, from you know getting that. And that, that that's what I talked about the record stores before. You used to be able to browse and pick up something and feel connected to it. And then, you, by the way, also there was the whole emotional thing of ripping open the album and smelling that vinyl. <laughs> it, it was a really sensory yeah, sensory a experience. Thing. You, you don't know, you don't get that when it says your download is complete. It's unless, not quite unless the same. you really are, unless you're really so emotionally attached to the song per se that you know once you get it, you just play it and you play it endlessly because you love that song. It happens. It's interesting you mentioned the you know the connection people have with the with the uh, with the artist of the or the um, the store, but people we had it with the DJs too, right? So when you mentioned you know you mentioned. Uh, WMET. When I, you know, immediately I thought of WNEW and the stable of disc jockeys that they had uh, in the seventies. When uh, I was listening to them, was look, I was there. I, wor- I worked. Uh, my 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 first promotion job. Um, I was I was actually hired by Capitol Records um, as quote. Uh, I think the job title was regional album marketing specialist. But basically, in nineteen seventy one. They sent me to New York to work, WNEW, WPLJ, and out on Long Island, uh, WLIRFM, and um, down in Washington, D.C., and up in a station in Boston, BCN. Oh, yeah, WBCN, yeah. sure. And those were the forerunners of what was happening. Um, and they, they sent me there to go and literally just work those radio stations. And, you know, my God, you had Allison Steele, yeah, Scott thinking Mooney, that. and Jonathan Schwartz. And, Jonathan I mean, Schwartz, yeah. Yeah, but that's what I was talking about earlier when I said the personalities are gone today. You know, I wonder I mean, what those folks are doing now. Not them particularly, but... You know, one thing that always fascinates me is, you know, if, if you had that talent, it's a very rare talent. People don't appreciate how hard that job is. I mean, it's an incredibly skilled job. If you have that talent, you can't be a DJ today. You have to do something. Of course, you can podcast, but it's not the same. Well, the, the stations don't allow it anymore. <laughs> so so I, I wonder mean, what those people are doing in their spare time. I wonder what they're doing for a living. The related question I have is, you know, in the old days, if you were musical, and the old days, I mean 1600, 1750, you you had a very limited set of stuff you could do, right? You could be you could play for the king, you could play for the rich guys, you could play for the church. That was kind of it. And today, one thing I wonder about, and maybe we'll close on this, as the profitability of various kinds of musical experience change. And right now, for example, we're talking about how profitable concert touring is. Some people aren't good at touring; they're just they either they don't play very well outside the studio, or it's not their personality, or they don't like it. So there's a certain natural advantage that accrues to people who can do that. One place that music is extremely profitable, I assume, and will be for a long, long time, is movies. So I assume a lot of the most talented musical folks – I'm thinking of Randy Newman. Randy Newman was a giant. I, I loved him when he was a, uh, a writer of individual songs, but he's been – he doesn't do that much anymore. He he writes his songs for Toy Story and – and and Pixar, and he's extremely good at it. He's a, he's a brilliant composer. So he's not writing for the King. He's not writing symphonies. He's not writing concertos. He's not writing Sail Away, which was a great album. He's writing songs for animated films. Yeah, you he think, just did the Princess and the Frog. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, yeah. So is that what other changes like that are are coming that you might think of? Is that well, a reasonable I, there's no, thought? There's no question whether the, you know the we all we all know that what what happens 
with great music when it's coupled with a great movie. You know, look look at Forrest Gump and what the soundtrack did. I mean, the soundtrack went multi-platinum because of the movie, and and none of that music, of course, was new. It was it was the best from each decade that that's used in the film. Yeah. But you know, there's also great songs that are used in in television and film that emerge out of those things. You know, there was a song used um, at the end of an HBO series, uh, Six Feet Under. And in the very last episode uh, of that of that series, um, there was a song played, and I had never heard it. Um, I immediately uh, went online as soon as the episode aired, and I I found out who did it, and I immediately found the song, and and got a hold of it, and and because of that, I wanted to, it, it was a song called "Breathe" by an artist called Sia. SIA. And by the way, that, 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 that's being used right now in a spot for a brand new movie, which I just saw last night during the Oscars. And I can't say what movie is, hmm. but um, the spot was immediate to me because of the music. Yeah, sure. no, but that song, um, Sia, who was an Australian artist, literally, uh, that song had n- only been uh, you know, uh, known by by some very progressive stations in the United States, but the emotional impact of the song from Six Feet Under struck tons of people, and it spread virally, and boom, she literally resold the song all over the United States, and from that became uh, on a different level. Um, well, same, so, same thing happened with even a more commercial, less emotional part. Yael Naim, who did that song that exactly, Apple used, exactly. became a national, international star because Apple liked that song. That's exactly right. And and again, and again, you're talking about you're talking about um, the emotional connection, and that's what film and television does. And right. when it's coupled together and it's done right by people, um, it's amazing that the power it has. Um, I, I just read an article in the last uh, one of my favorite TV shows right now is Mad Men, and they use music not only effectively in the show, but they use it at the end credits. And I just read an article now, uh, and and I'm not surprised because one of the producers was involved with The Sopranos, and they use music the same way. Yeah. But um, I just read that you know uh, they're all all of a sudden now that it's become such a little vital market for these songs that they're being inundated with artists that want to be on oh, even yeah. if it's the end credit. <laughs> oh sure. You know, and and shows like that. And I think and I think from the artist side, the opportunities in film and television are only going to become more and more and more powerful. Of course I, I, see- I don't see that I see that as a tremendous new screen opening up. And and one thing that the American public has a voracious appetite for is entertainment. Yeah. So and new entertainment is where you yeah. know they want that what's they want the novelty of it. Of course I said it'll always be profitable. Of course movies face the same challenge to some degree that music plays faces and journalism faces it to some degree. The digital age is making a lot of old models harder to be profitable. Yeah, and I you know I I was fortunate. I worked when I worked in the you know the the coupling of music, you know, like with with the Flashdance soundtrack, which is one of the first <laughs> films I think sure. from that era that huge, you know went multiple. But I worked hit. I worked at Universal and and we took the Miami Vice TV show and put a soundtrack together. We sold five million albums, became the largest selling TV soundtrack of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, I I promoted the soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop, and and it sold you know millions of copies. Um, the film companies are very 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 aware of how much it means to have a great song 
or if not a great album, but a great song. On, on all those albums that I just mentioned, they had hit records on the radio the same time the movie or the oh, TV yeah. show was running. Sure. So the added value of that was, forget it, every time the song playing, it's a commercial. My guest today has been Steve Mayer. Steve, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.